Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To Dangerous Minds, brought to you by Offscript. I'm Ed Stafford, the first person to walk the length of the Amazon River. I've always been fascinated by adventure travel. But is it an addictive, somewhat selfish escape, or could it be a powerful vessel for self-development? In this series, I'll be talking to some of the people I admire the most about why they do it, what they've learned, and what impact it has had on their lives. What does drive people to endure hardship while leaving those that they love to cope on their own at home? And is such risk-taking a reckless indulgence, or could it be a simple crucible in which one can resolve mental health issues and help find emotional balance in life? In a history lesson at school, when I was about 14, we were asked what period we most wanted to learn about. Most people said things like World War II or the Black Death. And I said cavemen and was laughed out of the classroom, probably quite predictably. But now, 30 years later, I find myself hosting a podcast with a paleoanthropologist who specialises in Neanderthals. Ella Al-Shamahi grew up in Birmingham and has Yemeni and Syrian ancestry. She's a National Geographic explorer, paleoanthropologist, evolutionary biologist and stand-up comic. She was the presenter and producer of BBC Two's Neanderthals Meet Your Ancestors and hosted an episode for Horizon called Body Clock, What Makes Us Tick, which also saw Aldo Kane as a lab rat locked in a bunker for an amusingly long period of time. She's currently doing a PhD at University College London in the Department of Anthropology and so we we're very lucky to get an hour of her time. Ladies and gents, Ella Al-Shamahi. Ella, how, how, how have you been over these last crazy months of lockdown? Um... The honest answer or the, the fake answer? <laughs> um, the really honest answer, definitely. Really, into honesty here. I, like, I guess I'm meh. Do you know what I mean? Like, just meh. Like, I'm not doing as badly as some people. And I'm definitely, I've definitely got bad days. But it's it's just, it's. I, I don't know how, I I don't know. I, I'm not supposed to be in London, I guess. And, and it's, it's, um. I always sound like a privileged twat when I say it, but I'm, you know, I think when you're used to being on the road and then suddenly, yeah. I, I've got to be really careful because, you know, when you just turn around and say, oh, you know, I can't handle being in London for this long, you do sound like a wanker. <laughs> um, but it's honest, isn't it? But but I think uh, loads of people relate to that because it's, um, because you're indoors and you're trapped and you can't do what you want to do. And that's that's pretty much everyone's position in the world, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, this is the thing. I think it's, I think when it first happened, I was genuinely a bit concerned about myself because I was like, okay, hold on a second. I've got two modes. I either need to be with people and active and I'm okay with being in a city in that scenario, or I've got to be in the wilderness. I'm completely okay to be alone, but it has to be in the wilderness. It can't be in North London. I'm losing it at times because I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, this is not... This is not how I'm what. Um, but then other times I'm, you know, I'm, it's, it's, I think it's funny because I think the risk side of it doesn't scare me. Um, it's the everything else that upsets me. Whereas I know some of my friends are absolutely terrified of contracting COVID and, you know, why wouldn't they be? Because of what we do, that bit isn't the bit that worries me. Exactly. I mean, when we when it started, I, I was like, "Oh, brilliant! This is sort of real life survival scenario <laughs> unfolding." And I was like, "This is fantastic!" And then that wears off after a little bit, and you're just like, "Well, okay, this is quite easy to deal with on a personal level, but uh, obviously not being dismissive about its impact on everybody else." Yeah, we're in a, a similar situation, I think. And for the sake of the listeners who don't know who you are, um, you are a champion um, of scientists operating in parts of the world that are labelled, I don't know, hostile or potentially unstable areas can you expand on that can you explain a little bit about what you do yeah so um the the basic idea is that a lot of most of science happens outside of what we would call politically unstable hostile or disputed territory so those are the kind of places where 
the British Foreign Office, um, for example, will tell you, you know, you should not be going there. It's very difficult to get insurance, that kind of thing. And the the result of that is that actually we're not doing science in quite a big portion of the planet. And if you actually want to discover stuff, that's probably, I don't know, probably you want to go to the places where people aren't looking that much. Um, but also, you know, I mean, you know this, some of those places are some of the most remarkable places on Earth. And so I kind of just feel like it's a tragedy for science and it's a tragedy for those places if we're not going there. So that's basically the, the, the kind of in a nutshell, I guess. And so what it means is I'm often in what some people like to class as war zones, but I will never go into an active like if, it, if there's if they're actually dropping bombs, I'm not going in. Um, okay. But if they're I don't know if, if all the other stuff surround. I think a lot of the time when you say war zone, People imagine that the whole country is constantly in a state of war, whereas I think uh, the truth is that because one part of a country is currently being bombed, it doesn't mean that actually sometimes the adjacent city. I mean, I've been in places where you can see the bombs dropping on the city next to you, but you know that they're probably not going to drop a bomb where you are. And so, you're, you know, it's... (laughs) So relatively safe. Yeah. And what do you think it is? I mean, this is about... My podcast is... It is about travel and adventure and that sort of stuff. But but on on the face of it, that stuff kind of bores me. And what interests me more is why people do what they do and, you know, how it affects them and the impact on them and all that sort of stuff. So what makes you different to 99% of society who wouldn't want to go and operate? For example, all, the, all of those scientists that you talk about who aren't operating in these sort of environments. What, what, why are you different? I don't know if I'm that different. I'm just, Because... Like if you think about it, it's that actually there's a lot of a lot of hurdles in people's way uh, when it comes to working in those places. So we have this, you know, in the outdoors community, conservation community, um, explorer community, kind of adventure world, science world. It's actually just hard to get insurance to get your teams into those places. Um, And so I think a lot of people, when they're given the choice between, you know, I don't know, Greece and parts of Somalia, they're like, well, you know what, it's just going to it's just easier for me to operate in Greece. I don't don't know if, I don't know if it's that they necessarily don't want to work in those places. I mean, some of them definitely don't. Um, I think it's that, I I don't think I'm an adrenaline junkie. And I think it's kind of important to point that out. So I was the kid who, when we were going to Drayton Manor or Thorpe Park or whatever, I was like, why am I paying to make myself terrified? I don't understand this concept. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not that person who, goes out in search of risk I do have to caveat it though by saying that I would be lying if I didn't get a little bit of a kick from it do you know what I mean like I I definitely get a kick from the fact that I have dodged landmines do you know you know that kind of thing it makes me feel yeah it does something to me and it gives you really good pub stories right and and it's nice to be able to have good chat because I watched your TED talk, the one you did a couple of years ago. In fact, I watched them both. But um, you could just tell from the sort of demeanour of your face that even though you were saying, on one hand, I'm not advocating that scientists be really gun ho and all go to dangerous places, but you could tell that you kind of were <laughs> because you were so enthused about it and so passionate about it and so excited. That moment when you described when um, I don't I don't want to go into uh, Yemen yet because I think um, I want to focus on that a bit more later. But but you could see the excitement there. Um, so yeah but it is it's a difficult one because like after that so so my first TED talk I kind of was I mean I didn't like either of my TED talks but the second TED talk was much more on message um and when it went out there I did get quite a few scientists message me going you know what after your TED talk we've decided to and suddenly I was like hold on a second did they hear the line where I said you need to make sure you're trained (laughs) because suddenly I was thinking crap genuinely if something you know it's like if something happens to a member of your team I mean the amount of you know, it takes me a long time to prepare expeditions. And that's because of the places I go, because I'm like, I can't have that on my conscience. I can't have people's families being, you know, devastated because one of my team members died. So there was a bit of me that was like, oh, crap, they, I hope that everybody understands that they need to make sure they're adequately trained (laughs) before they just go out there. Uh, So I think, you know, and I think because it's you, and, and just, just genuine I should be honest and say look as much as I'm not an adrenaline junkie it does there is an element of excitement about it um but I think the the main reason is just uh I guess I guess there's two reasons one is um that it was kind of an accident so it just happens to be that my family are Yemeni so when I was just at uni really like an undergrad 
um, I was just, I could see that Yemen on the map was interesting scientifically, right? I was like, there's, there's a story there because it's really close to East Africa. Humans started in, well, you know, probably started in East Africa. So, you know, there's something going on there. Why are we not looking at Yemen? Yemen's next door, blah, blah, blah. We're not looking at Yemen really because it's a war zone, let's be honest. And because my family's from there, I'm like, yeah, but I know that my cousins are still getting married. They're still having kids. They're still, you know, they're still having fun and having a life, even though there's a tragedy in the background, right? So I'm thinking, well, okay, I'm used to instability because of that. I'm like instability adjacent. So for me to suddenly go, actually, let me start working in Yemen. And then based on that, go, all right, let me start working in all these other places that are unstable. It's not really that weird. And then I think the grandiose thing that I like to say, <laughs> um, the one that makes me sound like a proper wanker, <laughs> is that um, I think in the old days, you know, the kind of explorers that we would read about, they were scientists a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time they were scientists, some of them were geographers, a hell of a lot of them were polymaths. They like knew, you know, they everything from linguistics all the way through to maths, blah, blah, blah. It was really about going into the unknown and it having this incredible purpose. It was it was about knowledge. And I think that's, I mean, you know, we've discovered all the continents. There's only so much more that we can find. And I think, I think a huge part of that is, is knowledge base now at this point, you know, what can we discover um, that hasn't been discovered and have those, those incredible adventures that some of those guys of old had. I get frustrated with modern day explorers trying to justify their expeditions. You know, I'm doing it to raise awareness for, I don't know, shortage of water somewhere, or I'm doing it to raise money for some charity that is bolted onto their expeditions just to justify them doing an inherently pointless trip, which is very good fun and, you know, we'll push them. But what I love about what you do is that you've actually found a little niche there where you can have adventures that are genuinely risky but not risky for made-up reasons because you've decided to do it backwards in flip-flops or whatever they're, they're really genuine reasons they're risky areas but then you've got a real goal that you're passionate about which is why you're entering these areas so i, I think you have found what a lot of explorers are looking for which is a, a really justifiable sort of um passion which is leading you into these areas do you agree with that so i don't want to poo-poo completely on every once in a while somebody doing an expedition just kind of for the hell of it do you know what I mean like I think mm. I think you should be allowed to do stuff every so often just because it's fucking cool right it's, yeah. it's you just you need to be outside you need to get out you need to whatever but I think as a community let's be honest the explorer community as a whole mostly the purpose is kind of like almost like forced onto the end there we're like and one of the, to be fair we're really good at raising money for charity and I don't think we should poo-poo that but I, don't, I think we've kind of lost the original essence of expeditions. Um, and I'm not the only one that thinks this. A lot of people think this. And that's why you've got organisations like um, Adventure Scientists and all this other stuff, you know, where they partner up um, adventurers with scientists or where they partner up um, adventurers with, you know, whoever needs data collected. So it's like, okay, climb that mountain and that whole crazy whatever. But by the way, here's a test kit. Can you, can you just be collecting stuff as you're going along? I don't know. I keep going back to it. But when I read the books of these explorers um and i'm not saying they're perfect beings far from it some of them but um there's that just sense of absolute wonder it's not just that they're going into the unknown it's that they're actually going to discover something mm. and just that's a feeling that you just, I, I get goosebumps when i think about it. it's just <laughs> it's you know we think we know everything and actually you know there's and I, and I say it a lot. There's this there's this moment at the beginning of an expedition usually where I kind of I jump out of a jeep or whatever the hell I'm I'm in, and I kind of look up at this landscape. And I and there's it's only a small possibility, but it's still there that I might find something, and that might change our understanding of who we are. And I'm beside myself whenever it happens because <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, you know. And and obviously ego's involved in that because if I find something, I'm suddenly on the map. Blah 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 blah. But it's I can't help it it's it's kind of it's just this really it's a, such a magical powerful feeling and and I think it's innate to so many of us it's why adventure books are so popular for kids you know it's what it's why we were all hooked on that stuff I don't know if, I don't think it matters that ego comes into it a little bit I mean I totally agree I walked the Amazon to be able to beat my chest and say I was the first person to walk the Amazon but I think if you put yourself in that sphere 
other positive things end up happening and you think actually this isn't as soulless as I thought it was actually you know some people are inspired by this or you know actually it's amazing for my own personal development or whatever it is there, there are, end up being other real positive knock-ons don't they and you know when you when you can I ask you a question? Am I allowed to? Am I allowed yeah, to? Of course you, can, you can do whatever you like. You know? <laughs> and when, when, when you walked the Amazon, I mean, in your mind, were you thinking at the beginning of that, all right, at the end of this, I want to have this, this and this output? I, I know you're in telly now, but obviously back then, was your output, were you thinking, I want to, you know, this is a really big feat if I do this, I want to be screaming about this or I want to be writing about this or I want to, show the wonders of this place was that in your head or were you just like I've just got to do this I'm curious there are many different levels on which I could answer that question I mean there was um there was a guy called Bruce Parry I don't know whether you remember him you might be too young who did the tribe series for the BBC and and I was quite inspired by him um and I I knew that if I did it because I stumbled on the fact that it was a Guinness world record no one had done it before so I knew it would attract a bit of attention so I kind of knew that it would help me in terms of my career. But I think on a, on a sort of deeper um, emotional level, I mean, I'm, it's actually leading into the question I was going to ask next, but I think I was quite an insecure child, certainly. I was adopted, and so, you know, far from being a sob story, you know, it, it's kind of one of those things that's made me who I am. But it definitely made me insecure, and it definitely made me need to kind of prove to myself that I was capable, that I could that live in this world, and that I wasn't just a reject, basically. <laughs> Sounds like a sob story, doesn't it? But, um, but, but um but I was just I was actually wondering whether you had because I, I think a lot of explorers have little chinks in their armour that make them reject the standard job where they go to work every day and they do something really mundane and probably very worthwhile but not extraordinarily exciting. Um is there something that from your past that see how I've turned this back on you, this is brilliant. Um is there something from your past that you think moulded you to sort of seek these more sort of adventurous, dangerous sort of scenarios? Um, first of all, I, I just kind of want to say I didn't realise you were an insecure kid, and I think that's that's so bloody heartwarming. <laughs> no, I, I just think that's amazing. That's really yeah. Um, quite shy. Yeah. Whereas I was always a slightly um, loud so and so. I think um, I would say from my side, I think it's that I experience instability because of my family, real political instability because of the communities I come from. So I'm, I'm incredibly lucky in the sense that I'm English and, you know, all the rest of it. But, you know, I, I know what it feels like to have, I don't know, like a father on a hit list or, do you know, like it's, it's that's something that's part of my reality. And I think one of the things um, that I would struggle with was how we tell stories about places which are forgotten, right? So how, how can we attract people's attention to these places? There's only so much war and destruction that people can handle. Um, and so I think, I don't know, I think for me, it, it was just really personal in a way that it wouldn't normally be personal for a kid from Birmingham. But just because of who my parents were, I was like, yeah, hold on a second. I've, I've been basically given this, um, this like silver spoon in life because I'm from Birmingham. But my cousins are not necessarily, I mean, some of them are doing fine, but obviously some of them are, are really not. And I think... I don't know. That's an interesting one. Is there something in us innately that makes us not want to have the nine to fives? I want to tell you that it's because I have purpose and because of this family background and because of blah, blah, blah. But maybe it's also just that I've got an ego, you know, and I, I want to be, you know, something. Nine to five, you can be something with a nine to five. Of course you can. But um, there's something sexy about our line of work. Um, so I don't know. I'm hoping it's the first one, but I strongly suspect there's any elements of the second one. I mean, you know, you know what it's like. We, you know, you tell somebody what you do and it's so different. And, and I think we're so, so bloody lucky to be given this opportunity um, and for it not to have completely fallen apart. Because let's be honest, that's completely possible as well. So it's almost like it's just the complete luck of the draw sometimes if it actually works out and you actually get to make a career of it. Um and, and for me, it's for me, it's like living the dream. You know, it's I don't mind working seven day weeks all the time because for me, it gives me purpose. It makes me feel like my life is exciting. It You know, it does something for me. 
but you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a family. So I, I, so I, I dude, I don't know. It's turning into therapy very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we all put on um, fronts in life, don't we? And I think, you know, if you're insecure, quite a good idea is to walk the length of the Amazon because then everyone will, t- everyone will tell you you're really tough. And then, then as far as the world's concerned, you're really tough. And so... <laughs> yeah, I hate to alarm you, but if you came up the Amazon at the other end and I was the interviewer and I was like, oh, and you revealed to me that you were you didn't really have much self-confidence, I'd just look at you and be like, yeah, right, mate. <laughs> okay. We've touched on Yemen, obviously, and, and, and that's the big thing. And I know that you're quite keen to, to talk about it because it is a difficult subject, especially as people get a sort of apathy towards war and conflict and stuff like that. You've mentioned that you you have family there um, still, and so obviously you've got massive connections to Yemen. But in May this year, UNICEF described Yemen as the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, um, and an estimated over 24 million, which is about 80 percent of the population, I believe, needed um, humanitarian assistance. Um, how can this be going on with so little attention diverted to it? Do you think at the moment? Oh, I don't know. And it's 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 a, it's it's properly crushing for me. Um, in that it's hard to see your family like that. And, you know, to get messages from, you know, every so often you get a message from somebody saying they're hungry or from, you know, and it's just, you just don't know how you're supposed to deal with it. And yet, you're right, there's not that much uh, media attention at all on Yemen. Um, I think partly it's that there's this concept called compassion fatigue. And it's the idea that there is so much crap going on in the world that, as as a public, it's not that we're assholes. It's just that we just haven't got the capacity, you know. And I think at the time right now, like when COVID is going on, everybody knows somebody, you know, who's you know been laid off or is really worried about money or possibly even somebody who's passed away. So it's very hard to suddenly start really caring about uh, people across, you know, on the other side of the planet. There's sometimes um, a few international journalists out there. Uh, but it's not a regular thing. I also do think that Yemen's a complicated crisis. It's a really complicated one. Um, it's more complicated than Syria. And so I think, you know, it, it's not something people understand. They don't necessarily know people from Yemen. So it's just, it's harder. But it is a, it's been a pretty uh, difficult few years for Yemenis. And I think COVID has hit them really hard as well. So the, the COVID stats are just horrible they they i mean at one point the un were predicting that um the fatality rate so if you had confirmed covid the fatality rate was 25 percent. so that's something like five times the global average yeah and i've lost loads of family and loads of like even colleagues and you know and it's just to covid just in the last like two months and it's just a bit you just sit there and you're like oh my god how how do we crack this you know in my head it was always oh you do science and you do adventure in yemen so that people might notice because it's an easier subject to lead in with right it's almost like tricking people into giving a shit about you know a calamity across the other side of the world but I just I think we all just feel a bit defeated and I have to say it's really made me think a lot about live aid um because so when I was growing up obviously that was big thing everybody knew about it um as I got a bit older there started to be a few criticisms of it because it was only showing pictures of starving kids it then kind of didn't really help with Ethiopia's economic development, blah, blah, blah. And they should have been a bit more sensitive about, um, you know, making sure it was, you know, like there were stories of people getting off planes um, in Addis uh, and going, hold on a second, there's actually a functioning city. <laughs> kind of everyone just thought they were going to like turn up in mud huts. Um, and I think, you know, like charities, we like they do have a responsibility to kind of, you know, they need to put those images out there, in my opinion. I don't, I'm not one of these people that thinks, oh, you don't put those horrible images out there. I think you do. But I think it, you just need to think a bit more carefully about, you know, is this the only thing we put out? But you know what? Like, just in the last like week, I've gone, you know what? I'm so beyond that particular discussion because mostly I'm just like, that was amazing that a bunch of celebrities got together and actually managed to pull off that massive thing like for me I'm like forget those other two discussions about like oh how good was it how problematic I'm like it's just amazing they managed to do it because every one of us knows about it it was it was just I think naive wasn't it and 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 it was done it was done without a sort of um well maybe because it was the first time and we all mess up don't we but um you know I I I spent a bit of time in Ethiopia and Bob Geldof his name is is uh mud there really isn't it oh, really? 
people really think that he's he's responsible for thinking that they're all you know they're all starving pot-bellied kids with flies all over them and um and 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 yeah no i, I, I it was a, it was a very 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 negative conversation about him but i've well yeah maybe maybe it's atypical I, i'm not sure but um i mean i don't think you should personally i don't think you should throw away your original thing about you know your you're sort of distracting um, the general public in order to be interested in a place because of uh, adventure. And, and you actually, for the sake of the listeners who don't who don't know your backstory, you did a expedition to Socotra, um, didn't you? For that reason, would it better be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, it was completely for that reason. So um, basically, for, so the war had started. So the war was like five, six years old now. And the war had started and... Um, being an archaeologist, I was obviously really concerned about the World Heritage sites. So, you know, it's it's. I mean, it's it's just you know, it's it's hard seeing that kind of thing being decimated. Um, and so I was really concerned about all these UNESCO World Heritage sites that were under threat, and all these museums that were under attack, and blah blah blah. Um, and so I, I would just sit there. I'm not kidding. Like Ed, I would literally sit there looking at a map, going, "What expedition can I possibly pull off to this place?" Um, and you know, at this point I had projects going on in, um, in some other kind of conflict, um, zones, but like, you know, Yemen's, Yemen feels like a personal responsibility. It's not, it's not just a passion project. Right. And I just look at this map going, I don't know how to do this because all of the obvious projects that I could do there, I could not in good faith take in a white team. I just couldn't, there'd be a decent risk that they would be really, um, in an unsafe position and in fact in one part of the country I just can't go anywhere because of my surname because whatever politics blah 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 so I was just looking at this this map going I just I, just, I don't know how to take in an expedition team I just can't see it and then I started hearing that you know it might be worth having a look at Socotra blah 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 a lot of kind of people passing information you know that it's um it's actually quite safe once you get there etc etc and so that's essentially what, uh, what what we did. We 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 got there on a, on a cement cargo ship sailing through pirate waters, I guess. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, it took us a few days, uh, and it was once we got there, it was it was kind of incredible. But um, you know, it's part of a much larger project, um, and yet we were kind of glad that we were at least able to get some media attention on it because you know. Uh, National Geographic obviously did something on it. New Scientist, a few other um, outlets kind of did something on it. And we were just like, okay, thank God, we've got a story about Yemen out there that wasn't just death and destruction. You know, because I, I don't know if your listeners know what Socotra looks like, but please just Google it. It's S-O-C-O-T-R-A. They call it the most alien looking place on earth. And it, it looks pretty mental. <laughs> um, the trees just look really bizarre um it's we always say that the dragon's blood tree literally bleeds red so the resin is is red and it is just it's just an absolutely incredible place and so that was that was a very kind of typical example of trying to trick people into you know caring about a place through some kind of a crazy expedition yeah i I think you're being a bit dismissive in or cynical even by calling it tricking people i think it's it's clever i mean it's it's it's, It's like no different than anyone putting their best foot forward, isn't it? You know, you're you're highlighting something which is exciting, like potentially. And like again, for the sake of the listeners, this this is because it's a potential route through of our original ancestors. Is that is that correct? That was what you actually. So scientifically, scientifically, the the reason why we were there was um, a few reasons, to be honest. One is. So this is this is one of the most biodiverse places on Earth. So actually, if you correct for size, it's more biodiverse than the Galapagos. Yeah, I mean, the levels of endemism, endemic species there is crazy high. Uh, and actually, it's it's there are people, there are researchers um, studying Socotra, but there's not as many as there should be. Let's just put it like, I always laugh because um, there's always like, you know, there's always like a handful that are working on Socotra. Um, but, you know, if you consider that Wales has less endemic species and has a hell of a lot more scientists kind of working, it kind of just blows your mind how understudied the place is. Um, and there's only ever been one expedition that crossed the whole archipelago. So where they covered every single island, including like there's an island that's infested with rats. There's an island, do you know what I mean? There's just, there's crazy blah, blah, blah islands. And so your kind of listeners get where this is positioned in the world. So Kotras is between mainland Yemen and Somalia. So it's kind of, it's really out there in terms of, you know, place to go. 
And so we were partly going there to look at the biodiversity. Um, and that's kind of one of our intentions. And we're partly interested in the place as well because of the human story. Yeah, because it's so close to Africa. Um, the question is, you know, might we find, um, you know, uh, very old ancient cave dwellers? There's so many questions with Socotra scientifically. And I think our hope is just that we can get back for a really big expedition because, as I said, there's only ever been one expedition that's crossed the whole archipelago, and that was in 1999. And since then, climate change has really done a number on islands in particular, and Socotra's um, been really affected by that. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, you know... It, it's interesting and it's it's exciting but it's also very difficult you know sadly the war has has turned up on the island it used to be quite safe and now it's kind of um it's a bit more complicated so it's it's always uh i I don't know i don't know i I feel like that's half my problem is whenever like one part of a country just about looks safe enough you kind of start prepping a team to go and then something happens and you're like for god can you can we just have what can we just that bit can it just stay safe for five years so physically, your work there is, as an anthropologist or a paleoanthropologist, you're more talking to people or you're, because you're not an archaeologist, obviously, so you're not going into caves and digging for fossils, are you? Or are you? No, I am, I am. So, so the thing is, so the, the project, um, so the important thing to bear in mind with that project, and to be honest with a lot of the projects that I now do, is that I now tend to head up interdisciplinary projects. So a few years back, I used to join other people's archaeological paleoanthropological digs because we kind of do basically the same thing it's kind of digging in the ground it's just paleoanthropologists we go much further back in time right and so in the old days that was pretty much my only focus whereas now you know my teams will have a botanist in them and an ornithologist and you know so it's kind of it's very diverse um so my question on the island was definitely when the hell did people get to this bloody island and uh you know, why, why does it seem like it's only been inhabited recently? And, and why are there so many bizarre, there are these really weird like cave burials, which just they kind of they'd create like these massive burials inside caves and then they'd border the caves up with stones. So you wouldn't even know there was a cave there. And I'm a cave specialist. So it's kind of, that's just bloody exciting. Um, and it, sorry, I'm just smiling because I so badly miss caves right now. I could cry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I've got that written down as one of my questions, what your emotional attachment to caves is, bizarrely, because uh, I've spent I've spent quite a bit of my life sleeping in caves, actually, um, and, you know, two months of my life living in a cave on on Oluru, and, and I have to say, I, they just become so, um, I don't know, they become so you don't even want to leave them. They, they become so homely, so comforting. Um, there's this sort of magnetic attraction to them, and, and, and so I was going to ask that about you, like, bizarrely. Um, but obviously you do you like your caves caves are the original prime real estate and that's why you love caves that's why I love caves if you if you you know some people are definitely scared of caves but if you get over that you very quickly clock on to the fact that if it's scorching heat outside you just want to live in that cave that you know so I remember um, we were on this one um, excavation in Iraq with this really really big Neanderthal cave and we were sleeping right at the the foothill to the like kind of at the bottom of the mountain and um we were doing our work in the cave every every day and it just got to the point where we were like can we just like mutiny and just insist that we just sleep in the bloody cave <laughs> because if it was good enough to the, for the bloody neanderthals to be sleeping in the cave it really is good enough for us because we were sleeping you know in scorching heat outside um and it was just miserable whereas in the cave the humidity, the the temperature, the blah, blah, blah. You're constantly protected from the elements. I mean, it's just so amazing in there. And they're so, oh, they're so magical because, oh my God, sorry. I'm like, I'm probably having nostalgia from like just <laughs> five months ago. Just, um, but it's, you know, it's it's weird because I haven't been in a cave for a really long time. So anyway, um, just because of lockdown. But um, I think, so there's a few really cool things about caves. So one of them is obviously that, our ancestors understood how useful they were to live in but also they're really useful to kind of get a vantage point on the landscape so let's say you you need to stay somewhere for the night or you just kind of need to you know take a time out you go to a cave and often they're high up so you can kind of see what's going on in the landscape you know you can if you've lost a team member you can usually spot them from there you know um, you can see where the nearest water sources are blah 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 but the other thing that's really cool is that actually, in my opinion, most caves on this planet have not been identified. So the 
biggest cave in the world was discovered in Vietnam just like in the last decade my mate was part of like one of the Nat Geo expeditions National Geographic expeditions to kind of map it and there's something magical about finding the mouth to a cave so the mouth to a cave is kind of the opening to the cave it's like like that front door and it's it's kind of magical because first of all they're actually hard to find there's a there's actually a whole science to finding it so proper cavers or speleologists or just you know scientists or adventurers whatever who look for caves you know there's all these like things that you look for you know you can you can even look at satellite images and whole bunch of people will just sit there looking at satellite images, looking at shading or looking at particular trees that tend to cluster around caves, blah, blah, blah. It's like proper nerdy if you want to go there. <laughs> um, and then you have to kind of get on your on your legs because there's no other way of doing it. And you have to basically walk that landscape and you just walk and walk and walk in the hopes that you will find these bloody caves. And that's detective work in ways as well because um, you often, there's like little tricks that you can do. You look at maps and like, for example, if you're in a Spanish-speaking region and there's a, t- a little village called Cueva something, you're like, oh, okay, there's probably a cave nearby. <laughs> you start, like, befriending the locals. You have to befriend all these shepherds. So mm-hmm. one of my uh, expedition buddies and, and friend, uh, Lauren, is is um, really into caves and uh, we were kind of on this expedition together and she was she was explaining to me that um, she'd befriended this one shepherd so much. And I should explain, the reason why you befriend shepherds is because the shepherds often put the sheep in the caves for protection and just overnight. I got that. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, um, that was, that was for others, not you, Ed. Um, But, um, (laughs) and so she was just like really awkward. And it turned out that she'd befriended this one shepherd so much that he was about to propose. Like he didn't understand that it was purely for scientific purposes that she kept talking to him. Cause he's like, why the hell is this woman constantly asking me about where my sheep are? He's just thinking it's a pickup. Right. Um, and so, you know, just in finding those those cave mouths, it's really exciting. And then, obviously, when you step inside a cave, you have no idea if it's about to be a massive cave chamber or if it's going to be a teeny little, barely a cave, you know, what we call like a rock shelter, like it doesn't really yeah. go anywhere. Um, and the thing is, you know, sometimes if, you, if you're willing to crawl and get dirty and, you know, maybe do some rope work and all the rest of it, you can sometimes find some incredible structures down there. And just, you know, first of all, they can look like cathedrals. They can be huge, these cave chambers, like these cave, basically rooms in the caves. And they're, they're, you know, they're sometimes like like these massive networks and you kind of go in, there's tunnels to this and there's tunnels to that. And then if you're really lucky, I don't know, you come across Mayan gold or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. like, I'm taking the piss, but, you know, you, you actually come across like dead um, kind of a burial or some incredible discovery. And it's just... Oh, it's magical. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot of what I do is um, primitive skills, I suppose, to some respect. So, you know, the fact that I can light fire with different um, fire by friction methods or percussion methods where you're banging stones together is quite similar to the people that you study, I suppose. Um, uh, what do you make of, um, I suppose, the new um, attraction in um, learning these primitive skills? And, and, and I think the rise of it, I think there's more and more people who want to learn bushcraft, want to learn to light a fire without, without a lighter and stuff like that. Um, is it completely irrelevant to you? Is it somewhat comical? Is it, is it quite a nice way of, of, of keeping this sort of ancient wisdom alive a little bit? It's interesting. I, do you know, no one's ever asked me that. Okay, so I, I would say 
I get it. Like innately, I get it. Why wouldn't you? And I think, you know, you want to be in the outdoors. You want to feel at one with nature. I think um, I don't want to kind of shit on cities. Cities are great and, you know, they have their purpose. But let's be honest, there's a lot of data that suggests that we're a little bit more miserable because of, you know, how common cities are and the fact that we're not at one with nature. You know, we if you compare it somewhere like London to New York, actually really lucky because we have a lot more green spaces but even then like oh my god you know when you hang in the middle of a tree when you're just hung in a tree it is genuinely I I actually find hanging in trees more peaceful than being in caves like I just like properly like in it like just with ropes and you're just there and you're like this is this is the good life because it's you're so at one with nature and I think we evolved for most of our time, um, you know, in those conditions. So why wouldn't we be programmed to find that peaceful and helpful and really interesting and curious? There is an amusing side to it, though, because the logical side of my brain, so that's kind of the, the emotional side, blah, blah, blah. There's a little bit of me that logically thinks, yeah, this is going backwards. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, like, think about it. We, we have been given, uh, I'm going to get really nerdy right now, but there's this concept called cumulative culture, right? So. Right. It's the idea that every single generation builds on their parents' technology, their culture, their art, their music, blah, blah, blah. So it's the idea that like um, Steve Jobs 50,000 years ago, if we dumped Steve Jobs 50,000 years ago, he would never have invented the iPhone because Steve Jobs needed all of those inventions beforehand. There's a little bit of me as a paleoanthropologist that is amused by it because I'm like, what, what? hold on a second. The whole point is we've got to this place as a culture where we don't need that shit. <laughs> so why are we going but, backwards? But um, maybe we do. Maybe we do from an emotional standpoint. And I think that, that, that's, that's, that's for me, that's, that's the thing. interesting thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's, I think, you know, there's a cynical view, right? That, oh, people are just bored and it's like middle-class people being bored, blah, blah, blah. I don't. I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of it, but I, I think it's genuine that genuinely kind of what you're saying, which is that you see it, you know, you see it when you're at one with nature and you feel like you're doing something real with your hands. And it just, it just feels really, really special. Um, I think, you know, you're in the Western world, particularly a good exception to that rule, but I think we've become incredibly stupid at doing a lot of the basic life survival skills. So for example, if you... Uh, Jared Diamond's kind of book, uh, Guns, Jones and Steel, he talks about Papua New Guinea and he talks about like the intelligence of all these hunter-gatherers in Papua New Guinea. And one of the interesting things he says is that um, we, or kind of the Western world, will see some of those hunter-gatherers as being quite stupid because, you know, they they don't know some of the things which we're so used to, right? Because they haven't kind of been exposed to them as kids. But he pointed out something and I just read it and I thought, damn, he's right, actually, because I've seen that a million times where they will see some of our life kind of survival skills and they will think we're stupid. Like, you know, they will you're sitting there and you're like, I think it's that way. Or I think and and they're literally even the kids know that you've got it all wrong. And it's because we're not one anymore with nature. And it's just really funny, though, because they we're sitting there looking at them like they're stupid. And actually they're sitting there looking at us like we're stupid over the basics, you know, just how to keep yourself alive without going to, you know, waitrose. Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, you can, you can walk into an indigenous village and you've got oh, so much probably more historical knowledge, dates, um, technical knowledge, all of this stuff. But, but you, you know, walk across a log bridge and slip into a stream because you just haven't got the, the simple practicalities to be able to... I think, I, for me, it's always been... Indigenous people have less knowledge but more wisdom. And, and you know, we've, we've got so much data, it's just overloading. It's too much. It's, it's you know, I, I almost make a point of not reading the newspapers nowadays. I know a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I, I know enough. I know too much, almost. And I just, I want to feel and live more, you know, like, like Indigenous people. So, it's, it's a, so I would say it's just two different, I'd say that it's both knowledge, it's just two very different kinds of knowledge. Like even just how to, the bridge thing was hilarious, because actually, yeah, just knowing how to hold yourself, you know, we're sitting there with our best bloody like climbing gear or caving gear or whatever, like Petzl sponsored, like whatever, and there's like half, I'm not even kidding, half the time it's not even like, you know, it's like actually just somebody in a village. It's not even like a hunter-gatherer who's kind of living in the forest. No, it's just somebody in a village is literally doing the same journey as you, ahead of you in flip-flops. And you're like, I, I just, I'm out, I give up, man. And especially it's like, 
in parts of the Middle East, it's really funny because I'll be sitting there kind of in trousers and blah, blah, blah. And obviously, trousers in parts of the Middle East aren't really done on a woman. Obviously, mostly it's done. But um, And there'll be like some guy in one of those kind of wraparound skirt things in flip-flops just doing the same climb and just completely beating all of us. And you're just like, all right, okay, that's fun. But here's my question to you, though. Because as I said, you are one of the kind of exceptions to that. When you're in those indigenous um, or particularly hunter-gatherer type scenarios, have you got to the point now where they're impressed with you and they no longer think you're stupid for your survival skills? Or do they still think, yeah, yeah, he hasn't got a clue what he's doing? I think... Because um... bluntly, I mostly, I've, I've yet to meet somebody who they think, yeah, okay, you, you know, I'm kind of curious as to whether you've passed that test. I, th- I, I hope I... I'm getting there, is what I think. I mean, when I started walking the Amazon, for example, I was in, you know, permethrin impregnated trousers to get rid of mosquitoes and I had all these little zips and pockets and this, that and the other. And I stood out a mile and I had even had sponsors' badges sewn up my arms. So I looked like bloody US military or something like that, which wasn't particularly good in the part of Peru that I was in either. Um, uh, and I just thought, do you know what? I need to be more local so I did buy a pair of wellies off the local market even though they were a size and a half too small and like cut holes in the ends of them so that my feet could fit in them properly but um and uh, local t-shirts and local shorts and just thought you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna make that effort even if it's just a visual thing of not standing out like a plum with a tilly hat on you know tilly hat twats I call them anyway um but yeah I, I I think I think from a from a from an attitudinal perspective, I learned a lot in that expedition as well because all of my time was spent with locals. I didn't, I didn't, there wasn't, after Luke left, which was three months into the expedition, there wasn't any other Westerners there. And so, you know, you had to take that sort of ex-military beret off and just, and just and, and, and again, again, maybe because of my childhood, I've, I've been quite a um, chameleon in terms of trying to fit in in areas. And I think people have been, you know, adopted often say the same thing, is that they're always trying to fit in. So... So you're learning languages, you're picking up nuances, and you, I do, I do genuinely think I'm, I'm closer to it than I was. Put it that way. Because yeah. our bodies, bless our bodies, cannot take, like we don't have the, the stomach for a hell of a lot of stuff. You know, it's kind of it takes a long time, and that's why so many Westerners die in these places because they just they don't have, you know, they they're just more susceptible to stuff. Did you not go through a really big crash for a long time afterwards where your body was just like, we can't, you know, we actually need the bloody mosquito um, repellent? Yeah, because initially I also stood out because I had bites all over me, really big, red, angry bites. And obviously locals often don't come out with bites at all. And then about three months in, bang, overnight, every bite disappeared. And, And I was just like okay, there's adaptation for you. Like, I'm no longer reacting to any mosquito bites at all. And look, still to this day, I can go to into a country, get bitten to hell and not react to mosquito bites. And um, so I, f- I think it's just it's just exposure to, to those regions for extended periods of time. I think, personally, I think... And it's the same with my gut. First season, the marooned, which was... Um, you know, being dropped off in dark places and eating dodgy things and drinking dodgy things. I was on antibiotics every single after every single episode for some sort of st- stomach upset. But now I've very, very rarely come back with stomach upset. So again, I, I think I think it's, I think your body adapts. I think you, well, obviously it does in terms of being exposed to things that it can then become immune from. But yeah, I think it just, it just gives up maybe. It just gives up fighting, yeah. I've taken this on as notes because <laughs> I get bitten to kingdom come and just swell up and... Um, when I started doing TV work, that became a real problem because suddenly we were in a position where the presenter, literally her face is like, you know, it was, it's got to the point where if I'm doing an expedition that's televised or if I'm doing something that's televised, I'm just on antihistamine now beforehand because there's just a general concern that my face, I mean, like I was doing a Viking show <laughs> in, in just like... I, we were on a golf course, Ed. We were on a golf course in Scandinavia. Right. Like, there was nothing risky about it whatsoever. I got bitten. My face blew up. It completely ruined the shots for the next day, which were the closing shots. I was like, great, we're doing really well, guys. <laughs> but I just, you know, so it's interesting to know that three months is what it took you to just kind of going uh, cold turkey on everything for three months. And it, it wasn't not getting bitten. I was getting bitten to... Yeah. Probably, but, um, but it, it was... It was just the body deciding we're not going to react. But no, no, nothing for three months, and then it. Well, it was actually my my walking original walking partner Luke. I managed to annoy him quite a lot, so he went home and 
I don't know whether it was deliberate or not because I've not seen him since, but he took all the mosquito repellent with him. <laughs> and uh, and so, we were, so we we did go cold turkey on mosquito repellent, which is why it was horrific initially, but then, um, yeah, and then uh, just whew, all stopped. <laughs> anyway, enough about me. What I um, wanted to move on to slightly is that um, you've had brushes with um, mental health um, issues in your life as well. And I, I, I bring this up not to pick holes in you at all, but because I, I end up bizarrely finding myself connecting more to the people who in this world who, who, who are open about their vulnerabilities than the, you know, the tough guys who pretend that, the, the, that they don't have any, I suppose. Um, but um, you had a difficult part of your life where you, you suffer from depression. Are you um, okay talking about that? Yeah, bless you for being so kind about it. <laughs> Yeah, no, so when I was, um, I was kind of like, I guess in my mid-twenties, um, life just went wrong. It's just one of those things. And you, you see it sometimes, you see it in your mates, sometimes it happens to, to a person where um, they've just gone through three years where just, it seems like everything's just gone wrong. You know, it's, it's like they just can't seem to catch a break. And that was definitely my experience. Um, I'd had a, an arranged marriage that had just gone really south, sadly. Um, and... Um, I was ill and, and kind of depression uh, was, was uh, an inevitable, to be honest, side effect. I've, you know, when you think about it, you go, of course, of course you're going to be depressed in a situation like that. It's kind of, it makes sense. Um, and I, you know, I was, I was really, really depressed. I was basically a shut-in. I just wouldn't leave or um, my ex-husband kind of, he'd have to come with me so I could kind of almost be brave enough to leave the house. Um, and I think at that point, personally I remember thinking your life's over you're done you know and I was I was kind of a bright kid so it was kind of really quite sad actually as well because it was like oh I thought I had potential and it's kind of all gone down the train because <laughs> I'm afraid to bloody leave a house in Surrey do you know what I mean um, waste of my talent <laughs> I know, I know. and it, you know it was it was really it was kind of just absolutely shit and I remember it just being so dark and I used to say that it kind of feel what did I say I used to think it was so poetic <laughs> I used to say I feel like a wraith neither amongst the living nor the dead and I think you know it's I mean that was particularly bad kind of depression it was absolutely horrible yeah. um and I was very very lucky and kind of worked really hard and and you know had a certain amount of luck as well and, and definitely um had the money to get therapists and you know blah 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 and all the rest of it and I was too afraid to leave the house and now I'm a National Geographic explorer specialising in, you know, unstable hostile territories. And I just, there's a little bit of that that's kind of heartwarming to me in the same way that I'm sure the fact that you had a rough, an objectively rough childhood and you've become who you are now, it's kind of like, oh, look, you can, you can. And in that hope, and hopefully it's hope for other people as well, you know, and I'm sure also that story gave you just like at times when I'm having a bit of a moment, I'm like... You remember what you come from, you know, remember what you've lived yeah. through. Come on, just, come on. <laughs> you know, you can, you can get through this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it is inherently, it's an inspiring story. I mean, I need to point out, I didn't have a rough childhood. I had an utterly privileged childhood in the end because I, I got adopted by middle-class parents and, and got sent to an high school and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that's no sub story. I worded it incorrectly, but, you, you know, like, yeah. you're right. Adoption kind of, it's, it's complicated, you know. But what was... Um, was there, was there something you say you obviously went into therapy and and again had the sort of privileges of being able to be helped but I think you're being again a little bit dismissive there but was there something in particular that helped you um in because obviously there are people struggling with mental health at the moment definitely will be people listening to this podcast who, who um have probably resonate with me because because <laughs> we're all messed up but you know were, is there something that really helped you that um, whether whether it be a sort of vision of what you potentially could do or, or, or something that, that you can remember that that went, do you know what, I've had enough of this and or, or this is going to cause me to get better? So I kind of, I guess what I did was I thought about my strengths, right? So I, I sat there and I'm quite analytical, right, which is really good for, you know, a lot of the stuff I do, but actually sometimes it can be a problem for my mental health. But in this particular <laughs> scenario, it was good. So I sat down and went, all right, what are my strengths, right? What are the things that I know I've got, like, I'm gonna, I've, like I've got my back, so to speak. And, and when I identified that, I was like, okay, so what is the basic problem that I have right now? So the basic problem I had at the time was that I was just really, really depressed and couldn't, I couldn't function. So it was almost like I was semi-comatose in bed, you know, it was just kind of out of it. 
So what I needed to do was to start leaving the house regularly, ideally every day, (laughs) you know? So to do that, I clearly didn't have it in me on my own. So it was, um, it was things like going, all right, so let me get, um, you know, let me get a personal trainer to come around one day a week. So I kind of taking me out of the house kind of thing, but like literally they would, and that's why I say like money helped at that point. Cause I was kind of, I was still married and, um, bless he was paying for it. So, <laughs> um, and so <laughs> let's be honest. Um, and so, um, and so, you know, the personal trainer would come to the house and kind of like, you know, drag me out, blah, blah, blah. So that was, you know, and then like a driving lesson another day that was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then a yoga teacher, another. Day. So that's kind of, you know, and then like friends or a family member or blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of like, all right, let's just force ourselves to get out of the house. Then one of the other things, as I started to kind of perk up a teeny bit, um, one of my mates said, you know what? You look at your bloody diary and you make sure your diary is full. Like you make sure you're constantly doing stuff in that diary of yours, because if you're just sitting there depressed and alone, and at that point I just got separated, I think. So I was kind of in a bed sit, uh, three doors or four doors down from a brothel. Um, so I was kind of just a bit like, <laughs> you know, losing my mind a little bit. Um, and so um, it was like, you know what, you're going to just lose your mind. So you've got to make sure your diary's full. And then the, the strangest thing happened, which is that I had like three months where I wasn't as depressed. Um, and then I, I took some medicine that I shouldn't have taken. Like they didn't check my background and it sent me straight back into the depression. And I mean, a particularly bad depression, like it was, it was horrible. And I remember at that point thinking, fuck this, we're going to give this one last go. Like before we completely give up, I would have these it was completely chemical, like take over my whole body, just sudden darkness. And it was like, oh, and when I was properly depressed, that was the, that was regular. And I was terrified when they came, you know, because I was like, oh my God, you know, I'd catastrophize them. And it's about saying, no, actually, they're just, it doesn't go away overnight. It's going to take time. And every time it comes, when you catastrophize it, that makes it worse. So just, just try and go with it and just accept that it's getting less and less. But yeah, I, I do personally, I'm one of these people that swears by therapy. I don't think it's a, it's the cure. I think it's part of like a, a journey. Sorry, I sound like a bit of a wanker. <laughs> so that was kind of the short term, how the hell I'm going to get out of it. And then the the long term was looking at myself at 27 being like, great. So your life's shit right now. You've clearly lost five years of your life. It's gone. You know, you've done nothing in those years, really. So how do you pick it up? And so I was like, all right, where do you want to be at 40? And I was like, don't let that part of you that wants to be realistic or embarrassed or blah, 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 take over. No, no, no. Just dream it. And then daydream about it. Daydream about how that would look at 40 when you've got that and you've got that and blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, right, how the hell do you get there? You know, plan it. And it was like just dreaming it. It was, it was dreaming health, basically. What is that goal in your, in your mind? Like, where do you see yourself? For 40... Crikey, that's young as far as I'm concerned, but um, so, but that's uh, still a little way off for you. So where where yeah. so what does dream, that look like? Well, so even till now, I'm a little bit embarrassed about saying it because it is it is kind of still delusional. Um, so at forty, what I wanted was to have my own excavation that was actually producing bodies, basically bones, right? Um, that I had completely found, as opposed to one that I knew kind of existed or part of somebody else's team. I wanted. Um, Oh my God, so weird. I don't, I've never talked about this publicly, sorry. Um, the, the second thing was that I wanted to be trusted with a, a big budget Hollywood film. Like I wanted to be a director. That's why I'm saying it's wow. completely insane, right? Like, I know, it's completely insane. I'm really interested in like sci-fi where it meets like um, comedy and current affairs and blah, blah, blah and all the rest of it. Um, like almost like the science, science that feels like it could just about be real because it's based in actual real facts. And, um, and then the third part of it was, you know, that I, I basically am, I'm a name that constantly comes up if people are interested in a, like certain topics, either on or off camera, that was kind of the aim. And so I was like, okay, so how do I get there? So for, for the first one, obviously, that's quite clear how I do that. The second one, I was like, okay, all right, so I've got to go off and become a director. So I went off and went to film school. And Ed, no, Ed very quickly realised I was a shit director and had no skill. <laughs> <What? laughs> no, I was like, all right, that's a certain amount of money down the drain, I guess. But you did, did you not produce one of your TV programmes? Yeah, the, the, I was the director of it. Nobody would have trusted okay. me with that. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, I guess that's kind of what happened. I realised that I was actually a genuinely bad director. Like I had no, I don't have... 
like you know some people even just knowing how to get incredible images or knowing how to tell a story in a in a I just can't do like it's just I've got better at it but I'm still absolutely absolutely atrocious but what I realized from going to film school was that and it's kind of only did a semester anyway but what I realized was that I I was a good producer and based on that people started telling me you should become a presenter they were like come on you're a comic stop it you clearly want to be a presenter and I was like no I don't want to be a presenter because in my head presenters were the show-offs and the real talent and the real power was the people behind the camera which we both know is kind of true right yeah. <laughs> um, actually at your level it's, it's actually probably shifted but like at my no, level no. Still, no, I, I don't I need to not believe that but anyway um but I was yeah because in my mind like if you were in front of the camera you were just you were like the clothes hanger right like you could be anyone at the end of the day it was the person behind the camera so obviously that dream of becoming a Hollywood director has very much gone out of the window, but it's been adapted now. So now the dream is that I would be able to sell my first comedy sitcom script that would kind right. of be based in the kind of world that I know. And that, you know, even that's completely bloody delusional, but it's, you know, it's part of the, part of the fun of it, right? You kind of, you dream. I don't think I it's... I can't believe I've you all this, by the way. It's not something no, no, to talk about publicly. <laughs> <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've, all, you've, you've deliberately stayed in multiple genres, really. You've got comedy, you've got TV presenting, you've got science, you've got paleoanthropology, you've got... But, but they all kind of work together, don't they? And, and, and so, I mean, I was going to ask you, are you going to, like, specify in one? But I, I don't think you are, are you? Because you've just told me that your dream is to, you know, is to have this comedy, and then you're doing a PhD at the moment, obviously, in anthropology. So they all, they all blend, don't they? Okay, there's a really brutally honest answer, which is that if I was, if I knew I was going to be the world's best comic, right, I might just specialise in that. If I knew, as a, I, I don't know, if I knew I had the skills of Alex Honnold, I'd probably just specialise in that, right? Um, but first of all, so that's kind of one of the things, it, like it's, it's um, Tim Minchin has this joke that he doesn't think he's the best comic in the world and he doesn't think he's the best musician, so he's gone off and become like a, a musical comic, right? That's kind of the... Um, and I do think there's a little bit of truth to that. I think that if you if you know you've got skills, but you're not necessarily going to be the very very best, um, you know, how do you then still do something with your life and contribute? But potentially, you can do more than the average paleoanthropologist could do because you've got that access to a big audience, haven't you? And I think therefore, you know, you can you can you can potentially have more impact. Yeah, it's fa- you know the weird thing. This is going to make me sound really arrogant, actually. This is really weird, but I see paleoanthropology. I feel quite confident with, but I think paleoanthropology would never have been enough for me. I fully accept that I would never be the world's best comic, but I think if I just specialised in paleoanthropology. I'm not saying I would have been the world's best, but I definitely would have. I'm, God, I'm delusional. I mean, I feel like I could have played in the big leagues. Like I'm not. I wouldn't be concerned about that. But for some reason, academia was never enough. And I think, you know, academia, I mean, academics are really interesting, but they are, I just, I needed more, I guess. And I think as well, there's something really magical about interdisciplinary stuff. So I think if you can hit the sweet spot, bluntly, let's be completely honest, you know, in telly, very few women from a kind of an exploration background ever get jobs. Let's be, let's be brutally honest. I mean, the annoying thing for me, obviously, is that they often are very scared of comedy, especially from women, I think, um, in that in that kind of adventure kind of um, sciencey space. But to be fair, they're scared of it from men as well in some places. But um, I can't see them having given me those jobs if I didn't have those two backgrounds. Right. You know? No, it's, it's a really nice answer. I, I, I like that as well. I mean, I think it's what makes you quite fascinating, actually, is because you have you have pulled all of these right. different uh, genres together and, and really made it work in a, in a, in a really lovely way. Um, how would you like to be remembered, Ellen? Oh, I would love to. I think if I, if I, because I, I do think about this and I think, all right, if you, when you're on your deathbed, what would you want? And I think if I had one contribution, it would be that the, the world radically sees um, war zones differently and sees um, the people that live there as not just just victims they are victims but also they might be incredible artists they might be incredible scientists and I think if I could create some kind of a shift on that and the way we see those places I think that would I think I'd be pretty proud of myself I don't know I debate it a lot because also you're one person and you're like so how much can I really achieve 
But the very fact that we're chatting now means that you have you have obviously achieved and you have got people listening to some extent. And you're never going to change the world overnight, are you? But you've got you're having a positive influence, which I think is amazing. You've obviously talked a lot about the Yemen. How can any of the listeners who who have been affected by what you've said? How can they help? So actually, we've uh, joined forces with Doctors Without Borders. Now, Doctors Without Borders are kind of everybody knows Doctors Without Borders. They're really great. They're they're very kind of um, they're definitely one of the sexier charities out there, and they're kind of often the last people to leave. Um, and in a place like Yemen, that means a lot. Um, and they've actually set up a fundraiser specifically because of what's happening. Justgiving.com uh, forward slash fundraising forward slash crisis Yemen. So justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash crisis Yemen. Um, and either donate there or set up your own page if you're feeling uh, a bit more kind of adventurous and have got a little bit of time on your hands. It's absolutely a shit time for everyone. So if you can't give, it's completely understandable. Uh, but if you have something, um, somebody was really surprised that you could give something like three pounds. I was like, of course you can. It's like, <laughs> just whatever you can do. <laughs> Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms to get new episodes first thing every Monday.